Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. We're going to read together there. And uh, as you're opening your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. You'll get more out of it if you open your own Bible, follow along, and I'll come back to the text many times. Uh, I want to mention something about life groups as you look. Um, so life groups are small group Bible studies. Most of them meet, the vast majority meet on Sunday morning at 8.30 or 9.40 or 11. And we have them for all the ages. If you have preschoolers, they're here when you're here, Lord willing. And they'll be in life group while you're in life group, worship while you're worship in worship uh, for the younger preschoolers. And um, so if you're here two hours in a life group and in worship service, they will be as well. If you have children, that's our K through fifth grade, um, they would be in the life group while you are and then in worship with you. If you have students, sixth grade through 12th grade, they meet all three hours as well, 8, 30, 9, 40, and 11. The ma- I will admit the vast majority meet at 9, 40. The teenagers tend to clump together, but we do have classes at 8, 30, and 11. And then, of course, we have classes. Oh, by the way, they, uh, tonight they'll meet for worship for our teenagers, their students, and they'd love for you, any of your adults or parents who'd like to find out more about it, just you can come at 7 o'clock and participate right here with them. And then uh, for adults, let me just mention a word about that. We have life groups for all stages and ages of life for all of you, all the adult classes from the youngest adults to the oldest adults, 8, 30, 9, 40, or 11. And you can, you'll see in the worship guide, a list of all the different classes. And if you're brave, you can just go to a class. The 100s are on the first floor, 200s, second floor, 300s, third floor. Most of the adults meet behind us to either side behind me. And then uh, if you need some help or you just want a suggestion or something, we'll stop at the connection point after the service, or there's a table out there I'll tell you more about as well. And we'll help you find a class. And I love life groups. I love that small group Bible study experience. It's an important one, and I want to encourage you in it. Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. And I'm going to read. Can you do this with me? I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a long chapter. You can just stay with me. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It'll be a little helpful, but uh, we'll put it on the screen as well. And let me mention a couple of the characters we see and who I believe those to be. So you'll see uh, in the text, when we read it in a moment, you'll see the dragon, that's Satan. We saw him in chapter 12 and more information about him, that's the enemy described here as the dragon. Uh, There's um, what's called here the beast from the sea, and I believe that to be the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be a more political leader um, who will stand against the things of God. And then in verse 11, we'll see another beast, a second beast, and he's called here the beast from the earth, and this is the false prophet, a more, a more religious sort of leader, and we'll talk about that more when we get there. Are you ready? All the way through chapter 13. In fact, let me read the last uh, verse of chapter 12. It says, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea, that is the, the Satan, verse 13. And I saw, or chapter 13, and I saw a beast coming out, up out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his authority, his throne, and great authority. Uh, One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? And the beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 
They began to speak blasphemies against God, to, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. And now verse 11, we'll see the false prophet here, this beast. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live in the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. The beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So you see a little of the story there. There's a Satan, who the dragon of old, who uh, wants to lead astray all who will be led astray. There's the Antichrist, this described here as a beast who's going to be more of a political leader who will lead the world astray. And then there's the false prophet, the beast from the sea who will, or beast from the earth rather, who will um, be a more religious leader and lead people away from the things of God. So I want us to learn some principles from this passage. And if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write these three things down. You'll probably follow along better if you'll just write these down as we go. Three things I want you to note that God is teaching us from this passage. Number one, the enemy imitates the truth in order to deceive. So one thing we learn, we've really learned as we've gone through the book of Revelation and we see here is that the, the enemy is always trying to deceive. He imitates the truth in order to deceive. Satan loves to lie. He's called the father of lies. He loves to deceive. He often disguises himself as a means of deception. In 2 Corinthians 11, the Bible says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so he wants you to see a little of the truth or to twist the truth or have enough of the truth in order to deceive you and mislead you. And he's doing that now. And certainly at the end of time, he's going to do that more. So we'll, we'll see that in this text. Two things I want you to note. First, uh, a false appearance. He'll deceive by false appearance. Verse 11, if you have your Bible open, let's look at verse 11. The Bible says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. This is the false prophet. It had, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation we've seen the lamb. You may remember the Bible talks highly and frequently in the book of Revelation about the lamb who was slain, and this is about Jesus, because Jesus is the lamb who was slain. Don't, don't miss this, that Jesus died 
in your place and for your sins. He gave his blood. His blood was shed so that you can be forgiven. Just as in the Old Testament, the lamb was slain for the covering of sin and forgiveness. In the New Testament, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is slain for our sins to take our place. And we don't ignore that. We're not saved by our own goodness. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved because we're so much better than other people. But Jesus took our sins upon himself. He is the lamb who was slain. And we see that in the text. And now we come to the false prophet and he gives an appearance. His appearance is like the appearance of Christ. But the speech is the speech of the enemy. And so he looks on the outside. Great. By the way, we're often fooled by the outside, aren't we? We're fooled by smiles in appearances, and we're enamored by what people look like. And God, of course, cares about the inside and the reality. So the enemy is going to lie to you and deceive you and appear to be something he's not. He's going to say things like this to you. He's going to say, listen, sin, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's fine. In fact, you'll have a great time. It will be wonderful. And it's going to look and sound so good until you realize that, that it's a lie from the enemy. That the goal of the enemy is not to make your life good and happy and joyful, but to put you in bondage and imprisonment, to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's not just a false appearance, but notice, secondly, the Bible talks about false religion. And I want you to see what this false prophet is saying here, what we're seeing about him in verse 12. The Bible says about this beast, it exercises, verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast, um, the Antichrist, on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it, on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He has some signs that um, give this appearance. The Lord permits this to happen. And he sets up an image and calls people to worship. Verse 15 says, It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So he's compelling people to worship. And it's a false religion. Now, there's, there's a difference between religion rightly understood and religion wrongly understood. And let me kind of note each of those. So religion rightly understood is our response to our relationship with God. That is, when you come to know Christ as Savior, the Bible says you become God's child. He forgives you of sins. He adopts you into his family. You become his child. And out of that relationship with God come good works. Now, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works. That is, we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do enough good things to overcome the fact that we've sinned against God who is holy. Only Christ can save us. His grace, his love for us, Christ's death for us on the cross, his blood shed for us. That's the means by which we can be forgiven of sins. We're saved we're not saved by good works, but I want you to note this. We are saved for good works. So the Bible reminds us that because of our relationship with God, we do the right things. We're called to do the right things. So we attend church because of our relationship with God. We tithe because of our relationship with God. We serve because of our relationship with God. God has served us and we serve others. We obey because God, because of our love for God, a recognition that he loves us. And so we find ourselves wanting to obey God in salvation because of our relationship with him. We're not saved by good works, but 
always saved for good works. It is not legalism to recognize that we have responsibilities before God, that because of our relationship with God, it leads us to do the things that he wants us to do. And somehow in the Western world, we've almost come to think that you can trust Christ as Savior, and it doesn't matter what you do. It's no big deal. Do whatever you want, as though that's acceptable or right. But our response to the grace of God is always his, our response to his love for us is always to love him. Our response is to follow him and to obey. That's religion rightly understood, but religion wrongly understood is religion that replaces the relationship. We replace the relationship God wants with good works or religious acts. So instead of the relationship God wants, we just replace that with some good works and some religious acts. And can I tell you something? God in heaven wants something more than just your Sunday morning or just some improved behavior or for you to be nicer to small animals and older women. God in heaven wants you. Did you know that? God wants you. Not just the outside of you. Not just the appearance of you. He wants you. So for some, religion has become the replacement for God, what God wants. And so they might still do some of the activities, but they don't have the relationship. And much damage is done to God's work through wrongly understanding this. There is a, there's a, a guy in our church, maybe more than one, who used to work for the Secret Service. And he told me that not only does the Secret Service protect politicians, but they also are in charge of um, checking on counterfeit money. And as I understand it, counterfeit money is bad, as I understand it. You should not counterfeit money or pass it off as real money. You should not do that. And if you do it, you can go to jail. Well, how, I asked, do they find out about counterfeit money? And certainly they look at all the examples of counterfeit money, but the greatest way they find out about counterfeits is to know so closely the real thing. It used to be $20 bills that were so... Inflation means I think it's the $100 bills now. And so they look at that so carefully. They know all the details of what that $100 bill is like so that they know the real thing and therefore know the counterfeit. God in heaven wants you to know the real thing. So we want you to read the Bible for yourself. If you've not read the New Testament yet, I want you to read the whole New Testament. Many times read, learn what God has to, has to say. Spend time in God's Word and then the whole Bible. Get active in a life group where you can study God's Word with others. The Bible tells us that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And there's value in sharpening each other. Other people can help us on that journey of faith. Even give us some accountability. Get active in a Bible teaching church so that you can learn the truth and therefore recognize the counterfeit. So I want you to just note this. You are going to worship. You're going to worship either the Lord or something lesser. But you're going to worship. You're made for worship. There's something within the soul of man that worships. And it's either going to be the Lord or it's going to be something lesser. Money, many, many worship money, or pleasure, or your career, or entertainment, or power, or nature, or religion, but you're going to worship something. 
And the Lord is reminding us that he has called us to worship. He is worthy of our worship. The book of Revelation over and over reminds us of that. And he reminds us of the enemy who's imitating the truth in order to deceive us, who wants to mislead us and guide us in the wrong direction. And so God gives us his word so that we see this truth and can learn from it. And there's a second principle I'd like you to know. Would you write this down? The Lord calls us to endurance and faithfulness. He calls us to endurance and faithfulness. Let's go back to the text. Let's go all the way back to verse 5 and we'll start working our way through. In verse 5, the Bible says the beast, this is the Antichrist, the beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It's filled with pride, blasphemes the name of the Lord. Verse 5 says he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Uh, the beast began, verse 6 says, to speak blasphemies against God. Maybe in the early stages, um, the Antichrist isn't so obvious and perhaps more deceived by that. But at some point, he begins to blaspheme more outwardly. To blaspheme, verse 6 says, his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. So there's this persecution that happens to those who know the Lord as Savior in that time. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So he'll have a political power over this world. Verse 8, all those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. By the way, there it is again. that the We're seen, we're reminded that the Bible does not hide from us the death of Jesus, but exalts in it because he is the means by which his death, the means by which our sin atoned for. And all who have never trusted Christ as Savior, whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life, will see more of that. All the, all the rest will worship uh, the enemy because we will all worship something. Verse 9 says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. There's a good warning for us. Listen to what God's saying. Some, anyone taken to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. Anyone to be killed with the sword, with the sword, he'll be killed. And then notice the end of verse 10. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. So let's note those words. By the way, this applies to us today. It's not just something from the past. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says it like this. This isn't just about the future. This is about today. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, the Bible says, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And by the way, that's true right now. There are people who are suffering because of faith all around the world. And we're to resist the devil. The Bible says if we will resist the devil, he will flee from us. God's power is greater. Verse 8 reminds us to be sober-minded and be alert. Because the enemy's looking for an opportunity, like a lion looking for an opportunity for an unwinning antelope to come by. And the enemy is looking for you to not be paying attention and not uh, seeking the Lord and all the destruction that will come with that. So let's look at two words the Bible tells us to apply to our lives. The first is the word endurance. This calls, the Bible says, for endurance and faithfulness. Endurance, maybe it's not the most popular of Christian words, but it's a common one. Endurance means we're going through something. Years ago, some of you may remember, I was running long distances and ran a couple of marathons and Cobbs a half marathons and 
I just, I don't do that. So, although I did run uh, from the couch to the um, refrigerator the other day. That was a pretty quick little jog there. But outside of that, I just don't run those kinds of distances anymore. But I learned something along the way in those years about endurance. I learned that that first step is often the really hardest step. But even after that, it's, the battle's not over. And that there are times when your body just says, I want to quit. Why don't you go to sit in the air conditioning and enjoy the refrigerator, all the food that's in the refrigerator. Just go there. And even though you can go do more, your body just tells you, stop. Your mind is saying, quit. And there's something about endurance. I mean, not injuring yourself, but something about endurance. Now, spiritually speaking, the enemy is always saying to us, hey, just stop. Don't be so... Don't be so faithful. Listen, church attendance is overrated. By the way, it might even rain. So perhaps you should just take a little break from getting so active in church attendance. And giving, look at all the other things you could do with your money. And serving, look at the people that you're serving. They don't even appreciate it. And obedience, uh, that's, a, that's some form of legalism. You don't need to do those things. And the enemy's always saying, just quit. It's easier to sit in front of the refrigerator. It's easier just to do nothing. Here's the problem with endurance. It means we have to go through something hard. Like the, there are some things in life you can go around. But there are times when you just have to go through. This is a broken, fallen world. And there'll come a day when there's no more going through difficult times. But it's not this day. This day is a day of broken, fallen, sinful world. And all that goes with it, there'll always be, the Bible says, till the end of time, wars and rumors of war, problems and difficulties and struggles. Some of you, when I talk about going through things, it's not theoretical for you because you're going right now through something hard. And perhaps everything within you is saying, quit, and give up. Be mad at God because you're facing these problems and God's not, re He's not just giving you a way around it. He's letting you go through it. I, I want to remind you that the day will come when we will not go through those difficulties anymore, when there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears. But in this day, God calls us to endurance and seeing the long-term reality. This book of the Bible reminds us that God wins in the end. It reminds us of what heaven will be like. It reminds us of a day when endurance will no longer be necessary. But in this day, God calls us to endurance. And the second word I want you to write down is the word faithfulness. The Bible says this calls for endurance and faithfulness. The word faithfulness is about being faithful. It's about not compromising. I don't know how many of you will remember this. In, the, in, in my day, as, they, as older people say, in my day, we had uh, albums. Do, do some of you remember albums? Yeah, some of you don't remember albums. Albums were the round things that would play on a record player. and you would, It was a really neat way to listen to music, except when they got scratched or when someone was jumping up and down in the room. Those things caused problems. But I had an old, long ago, when I was very young, there was a Christian singer, a guy who was a secular singer who got saved and his life was radically changed and he got right with God and began to sing. His name was a guy named Keith Green. Any of you remember Keith Green? You have to be sort of older now. He died all the way back in 1982, long years ago. Well, Keith Green um, had an album 
And if I, if I am right about my memory, it, the album was called No Compromise. One of the songs was No Compromise. The album was called No Compromise. And the cover of the album, so that it was an album, and when it was in something, and the cover had a picture on it. And there's a picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sure it comes from that story. It's a picture of everyone bowing before an image. Everyone is bowing before an image, except for like one guy or a few guys. And I'm sure it's inspired by the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that story? In the days of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to make this image. When the music plays, I want everybody to bow down and worship this image. And so play the music. Everybody bow down because Nebuchadnezzar meant business. And so they would all bow down before it and worship the image, except these Israelites, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who knew the Lord said, you're not to have any other idols, no other gods before me. And so they did not bow. And the picture on the album covers of these guys, of these guys standing when everyone else was bowing, and it's a picture of not compromising. It's a picture of faithfulness. Now listen, there are many things in our world that you can do just like anyone else in the world. But there are times when God just reminds you, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful in a world that's broken and fallen and in many ways going the wrong direction. I want you to be faithful. And the Lord's calling us to endurance and faithfulness, certainly in the end of time, but God's calling us to that today. There's a third principle I want you to note. The Lord calls us to wisdom and understanding, to wisdom and understanding. In verse 16, uh, this may be the most famous part of this passage, verse 16, 17, and 18. The Bible says, and, and the, um, the beast, the Antichrist, makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of its name. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person it's number 666 so there's going to come a day when you won't be able to buy anything without this mark by the way it's, we see how easily that's done technologically speaking today how that could of course be so possible for this generation and people can't buy another way of persecuting those who are believers that are left and then we see the mark of the beast, the number of the beast, which is 666. So I've heard speculation on this, of course, all of my Christian life, as you can imagine. And perhaps you have an idea about who the Antichrist is. And if you do, perhaps you will join the long, long history of people who have been wrong about who that person is. Maybe that will be you. And I think asking who that is, by the way, I don't, I don't know who it is. If you thought I had some special, I don't know. In fact, I don't even think the question who is the right question. I don't think the point of this is that we're supposed to know who so much as the question what. What does God want me to see in this, to know from this? And the lesson he wants me to understand is the danger of elevating man over God. It's the number of a, of a person. The number six that represents people, humanity, six, and then another six, and another six. I mean, this is the humanistic view of the world. The Antichrist will certainly have that. Maybe he'll be, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is imagery in many ways, and he'll be thought of as handsome. Maybe he'll be super well-spoken. Maybe he'll be able to sort of 
suggest things to people that they tend to follow. Maybe it'd be like the beer commercial about they used to have about the world's most interest, the most interesting man in the world. Maybe he'd be like that, and people just say, "Oh my goodness, this guy's so insightful and so clever." And but man-centered. We say as a church, one of our five uh, kind of who we are statements is we are we say we're God-centered. We want to we want to know God's will for our life and for our church. We want to we want to find and follow God's will. We believe we ought to be centered on God. What? God, what do you want? But the danger is, if we're not, the alternative is we tend to be man-centered, or even more specifically, me-centered. Not what does God want with my life? What do I want with my life? Not what does God want me to do, but what do I want to do? How do I want to live? What do I think? What do I like? What do I get? And there are plenty who are man-centered. And the Antichrist, the ultimate of that. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, the Bible talks to us about, you may remember long ago when we started this, the Bible tells us uh, the value of this book. Verse 1 of Revelation 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. God's going to reveal something from Christ for us. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. So God gives us this truth because he wants us, he calls us to wisdom and understanding, to begin to see as he sees, to understand his purpose and his plan. God gives us the book of Revelation as he gives us the rest of the Bible in order for us to see the truth of who we are and who he is. We're to see the truth of who we are, who God is. The book of Revelation, this 13th chapter, helps us to see more of who we are and who the Lord is. So who are you? Well, the Bible says, there's some bad news, by the way, coming. You're a sinner. You've sinned against God. You're lost without Christ. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible says you're lost. You may not think you're lost. You may think you're fine. But the Bible says you're lost and that you're unable to save yourself. You're dead, the Bible says, in your trespasses and sins because sin, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he does. You're needy. You're not rich. You're poor. You're needy. And you need what only the Lord can do. But the Bible also tells us who the Lord is. He is the Savior. He is the one who can save us from our sins who paid the price, the consequences, the debt that we owed on the cross, who can save us from our sins if we will trust him, who will forgive us, who will make us brand new on the inside, who will give us a home in heaven, who will adopt us into his family. He is the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who knows what's going to happen in the future and who understands the past as we don't, the one who is worthy. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he is worthy over and over. Who's worthy to open the scroll, the Bible says? The, the lamb who was slain is worthy. Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. And so if we worship anything else, it is lesser. And so this longing in our heart to worship, we need something beyond ourselves because there's an emptiness, a loneliness, a need in our own souls. It's answered only ultimately by Jesus and he is worthy of our worship. Church, he is worthy of our worship. 
What a privilege it is for us to, to gather together and worship him with other people. What a privilege to study his word in the company of others, to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, doing his work in this day and age. What a privilege to participate, knowing that one day we're going to stand before him. So we're going through this uh, world of sin and problems and, and woe and pain and hurt and going through, but there's a day coming when we'll stand in his presence and see him face to face and know him as we are fully known. And the Lord is reminding us of this truth because he is worthy, he is Lord, he is Savior. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we bow, maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. And I want to say to you on the authority of God's word, you need Christ. You'll never be able to save yourself or earn your way to God, but God loves you. Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if today you will turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus who died for you, who rose from the grave for you, he'll save you. Right where you are, you can be saved. Turn from your sin and yourself and give your life to Christ. Place your faith in him, your trust in him that he died for you and rose from the grave for you. Ask him to save you and he will. Christian, would you just remember who he is and what he's done so that you don't waste another minute of your life in this world on lesser things, but that you live a life that counts. A life that's God-centered and focused on the things that matter, the things that count, the things that are eternal. And Father, I want to thank you for your word in this great chapter of the Bible that reminds us of these things that are coming big and painful and scary in many ways. But we remember that you hold all of this in your hand. That you are great and sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. So would you do a work in our lives? For those who need to be saved, would you draw them to yourself so, so that even today they're compelled to give their life to Christ? Would you draw Christians to a deeper walk with you so that we're not just living a life of appearance, but that the reality of our life is we're worshiping you and following you? Would you use this in our life so that we live a life that counts, knowing that one day we will stand before you? And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.